Welcome back to A People's Guide to Publishing. I'm Joe Beal, the founder and CEO of Microcosm Publishing and Distribution. I'm also the author of A People's Guide to Publishing, which distills what I've learned from selling millions of books over the past 25 years. I'm Ellie Blue. I'm the Editorial and Marketing Director here at Microcosm. We are an independent midlist publisher based in Portland, Oregon and Cleveland, Ohio. We have over 700 books, over 25 employees, and we make about 40 new books every year. And we distribute thousands of titles from other publishers. We started this podcast so that we can share what we've learned with newer publishers so that you can learn from our mistakes. Or maybe you just want to understand the publishing industry. This week, we welcome back Guy LeCharles Gonzalez, who is going to explain to the world how publishers can market to libraries. Tell us everything. <laughs> All right. Well, glad to be back. Well, the biggest yeah. difference between libraries and bookstores, I don't want to take this for granted, libraries don't return books. <clears throat> so at their core, publishers generally love libraries for that alone. Also, libraries, while their acquisitions are heavily driven by consumer demand, which means bestsellers are going to get acquired by many libraries, they are also more focused on trying to build diverse collections, and I'll put diverse in quotes, different things to different people, um, diverse collections to serve their community, as opposed to bookstores that are looking for the books that will sell and may take some chances on certain books because they know they can return them, but they're, they're much more about what's going to sell, where a library is much more about somebody at some point in our community may need this book, and we think it's important to have it in our collection. So the acquisition process is a little different. They also acquire through some overlapping vendors. You know, Ingram serves consumer and library. Uh, there are some library-only uh, vendors out there. On the ebook side, Overdrive is kind of the big gorilla, but they're ebook only. Um, so the the magic of libraries, I think, fits in that non-bestseller. You know, I think the Penguin Random House trial kind of reminded everyone for the more for the most part you can't predict a true bestseller you can predict what will hit the bestseller list for one week probably but you can't actually predict a true bestseller so you get the we paid two million dollars for this book and it sold five thousand copies we paid five thousand dollars for this book and it sold two million copies two years later because book talk did it and we had no idea like that's the gamut of consumer marketing so one of the biggest challenges with libraries is they, most libraries rely on some sort of professional media to put books on their radar beyond consumer demand. So, you know, traditionally that's reviews in Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, School Library Journal, um, less influential but growing are the non-traditional sources, whether that's book blogs, book talk. Um, if it's not a potentially controversial book, libraries usually won't have an issue acquiring it, especially if there's demand for it. Where the need for the professional reviews come into play is often on books that have some legitimate or not potential for controversy, where the library would need to be able to justify adding it to their collection. So we've seen that go wild uh, this year, you know, it really started to uh, blow up in 2021. It blew up into a whole thing in 2022, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, 
So libraries can you know, be challenged by the community. Why is this book here? I don't think it's appropriate. That's normal. There's policies for that. What's happened is it's gone above and beyond that to these coordinated efforts. So that's where uh, traditional sources of reviews become really important. So if you're a publisher in uh, a particular category that's being in, put into the spotlight for political reasons, LGBTQ, uh, anything regarding to race or history around race, social justice. Those are the categories where you might want to be a little more cognizant of uh, having an operation that gets you in front of professional review sources to get those reviews the right way. Don't pay for them because that's not going to work for anybody. Um, because that will help libraries feel more confident in acquiring your books. Beyond the controversial stuff, the mid-list, you know, what libraries tend to be loved for is they take more chances on the mid-list. Um, they still need to be aware those books exist. So the marketing timeline for libraries is often very different from the consumer side. When, we, when I worked at Library Journal, we had about a nine month, that was our ideal, get us those books nine months in. Uh, for a long time, it was print only, partly because the operation was built around moving around print copies and partly because a lot of the reviewers who for Library Journal, School Library Journal and Booklist are predominantly librarians. What a lot of people don't know is that Publishers Weekly, which doesn't offer bylines, they've never given me a firm number. I'll say conservatively, at least a third, probably more than half of their reviewers are also librarians. So librarian, you know, when we talk about influencer marketing, I get annoyed when book talk becomes like the hot new thing or you know, whatever social media trend preceded it. I always talk about librarians as the original influencers. <clears throat> they both are writing the reviews you guys depend on in a lot of trade publications. They're as active on social media as any random book blogger. And then they're recommending your books locally, which outside of an individual bookstore, you're not getting that. And I have some numbers. So in the US alone, there's a hundred thousand, there's more than a hundred thousand libraries. Vast majority of those are school libraries, but don't discount them, especially if you're publishing for children. Those librarians are probably your best source to influencing those kids because kids don't get to spend the money. They tell parents what they want and it's either their friends or if they're in a good school, their school librarian exposing them to um, interesting titles. There's just under 10,000 public libraries and include systems, and then including their branches, you're looking at over 16,000 public libraries locations. So that alone is bigger than your Barnes and Noble and independent bookstore network. And yet independent bookstores get talked about like they are the magic grease that without them, the publishing industry would fall apart. I love indie bookstores, but I get really frustrated when libraries don't get that same level of love. <clears throat> and again, libraries don't return your books. And then if you're uh, publishing in the academic space, there's about 3,000 academic libraries uh, that you can market to. Don't make the mistake of talking about libraries as a monolith, uh, just like independent bookstores. They serve distinct communities. School libraries are going to be different from public, different from academic. So know what, who you're trying to reach in the library market and then know where they get their information. You know, so public libraries I already talked about. They, they depend on consumer sources, but the trade media is big for them. Same for school librarians. School librarians spend a lot more of their own money on resources than public librarians. So keep that in mind as well. <clears throat> the, the ad in a print 
trade publication on the K-12 side may not be as effective as the digital version because school librarians don't have money to burn on a $100 subscription, but they'll read SLJ for free online. Um, academic has its own segment category of uh, publications that serve them for reviews. And libraries all together spend over $4 billion on digital content alone, and they spend more on physical content. So libraries are a huge market that don't return books. If you're not a publisher that's big enough to have a library marketing department, cheap. Look at what the big five, so one good thing about the big five that I think is always worth taking a look at is they all have a library marketing department. Most of them are pretty good. Most of them are much closer to libraries than the overall company is to the point where the, you know, Macmillan made a very problematic decision a couple of years ago that caught their library marketing team by surprise. They were not in support of that policy, the embargo on ebooks, um, but they had to push through it. So if you don't have a dedicated library marketing department, take a look at what the big fives uh, library marketers are doing. Norton has a pretty good one. There are some, and there's some comics publishers, Image, Dark Horse, both of them have dedicated library marketing uh, operations. Learn from what they're doing to figure out, you know, obviously pick the one that's closest to your category of publishing. Um, the most important thing, go talk to your local librarian, learn how they acquire books, learn who they acquire books from. Like, you know, uh, bookstores complain about having to buy books from two or three vendors. Wow, wow. libraries have multiple vendors they have to acquire stuff from, and they've got a, a community asking for a variety of resources beyond just books. So you can learn a lot just from talking to your lo local librarian. I encourage every publisher, wherever you are in the country, get to know your bigger library system not as you know the smarmy salesperson that's going in to try and make a fake friend to make a sale but to really understand how they operate where their needs are what's circulating you know that's one thing when i was running panorama project we had the panorama picks uh, thing where we would look at the <clears throat> the books with the highest unmet demand in regions across the country and we were using overdrive data for that and it was always fascinating to see you know the best the national bestseller list represents this national overview but when you bring it down to the regional library systems the range of books that were in like their respective top 25s 30 40% overlap tops there were books in the southeast that weren't appearing on anybody else's and if you're a regional publisher in particular like pay more attention to what your local library is doing than you know New York Public Library. You guys are in the Pacific Northwest, which is one of the best funded library systems in the country, the, especially on the digital side. Like, I don't, I don't know what you guys are doing up there that they have so much money, but they are really big on supporting digital content. They have the budgets to do it. So versus in the Southeast, you know, a lot of those library systems struggle to, you know, get the bare minimum on the bestseller side for their libraries. So really dig into your local library system, make a friend, understand what they do, go to some library events. You know, one thing libraries do that um, a lot of people don't recognize is in their day-to-day -day marketing of books. So one of the analyses we did at Panorama Project, there was a debut, I think she was a memoir author. Um, she wasn't from the Midwest. Cuyahoga County did a whole event around her book. It was a single event in the library. You know, they did it on their website. They have some local media partnerships. We calculated based on local regional uh, regional media rates. 
that was about a $15,000 marketing campaign that the library executed around this one event for this one book for a debut author, not from that area. And I guarantee you, her publisher did not spend $15,000 on that book overall. You know, so that's the level of <clears throat> push a library can put behind your book. A lot of it's organic. A lot of it is driving off the marketing you're doing. And then some of it is, they've just got a really smart publisher in their community who's worked out a relationship with them. And the library is one of their best tools for mutual support. So I, th I think libraries offer a lot to publishers that get underlooked or taken for granted. And some of that is because there's not a lot of hard data to measure their impact. I, I don't know if you guys know, most publishers don't actually know how much of their sales explicitly come through libraries. And you certainly don't know how much of that is driving consumer sales afterwards. Right, those are great points. And we, we run into this a lot where, you know, I mean, and to some degree there's, um, you know, you're, it's like the black box problem where you could look at, you know, like how much certain library jobbers are ordering and you can, but, you know, for example, like our export sales go through the same channels, you know, so our sales to India, for example, could be that or they could be to a public library in missouri like it's it goes through the same channels so we just have no idea right you know and and that's and i think for other publishers it's even sort of worse than it is for us because you know they're they're further intermediated from those um outlets but yeah so it's interesting you know and and what we run into a lot that i found really interesting about libraries is even parents are very um, protective, even conservative of what their children can get into, but the librarians are sort of pushed on the other end to get sort of edgy topics or, you know, things that just like people in their community are interested in, even if that might upset some people. And then they sort of have to backpedal to substantiate those purchasing decisions. So can you talk about how that works in practice? So in a properly functioning system, there is there are policies <laughs> in place where, you know, you as a parent, you know, unfuck your shelf. Why is that visible from the kids section? You know, obviously that's not going to be shelved, most likely, in the kids section. But there are complaints that, you know, take that leap. Like, I'm in the kids section. I can see it over there. That's inappropriate. You should pull it. Um, most libraries have policies in place where a member of the community can challenge that book. And there's a uh, process that that goes through. Some include temporary remo removal of the book. Some include it stays until we make a decision. But there's a formal process that when followed leads to a result that is then communicated and accepted. What's changed over the past year and a half is these are not good faith challenges. These are uh, organized challenges that aren't even really about the books at all. And it took, I feel like it took the industry way too long to recognize the political aspect of these challenges and you know you know we went into this year and it was going to be a hey, banned book marketing oh if the library doesn't have it go buy it like you're missing the point it's not using this to sell more books at the bookstore there's you know something underneath this so you know in a the problem has come in where libraries for various reasons have on their own decided to circumvent those policies because the pressure is just too much and they don't have the support. 
um, if you're a publisher of books that are being challenged, <clears throat> I think one of the things you need to do is A, be more vocal first and foremost in your support of libraries. Don't just rely on ALA. They're Unite Against Book Bans. You know, that is your typical uh, trade organization window dressing that last I checked is still just funneling money to their general operations fund. It's not a dedicated fund to fight to support libraries uh, in the challenges against book banning. It's the equivalent of the ALA uh, sticker that a lot of publishers have that say we love libraries, but then don't offer their books to libraries at fair rates or at all or whatever. Um, so if your library isn't following those processes, you know, this goes back to act local. You know, it's one thing to put your statement on Twitter and blah, blah, blah. You, wherever you are, go to your local library, understand how it's working there, join the board. Like, I've been surprised to not say, well, I shouldn't say I'm not, I'm surprised. I'm not surprised. There's not a ton of publishing people saying, hey, <clears throat> I'm running for my library board because my community. Now, this might be because we all live in relatively liberal areas and it's not our communities this is happening. So, you know, caveat there. Um, but that's the way to fight it is if you're in a community where that's happening, join the board, join the library board and actually you know, step into the fight, do all the marketing and you know, ambient support you can do. But that's, you know, at the local level, that is the most actionable thing any of us in the industry can do if that's happening in our community where that's an option for us. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And, and so do you, I mean, and this is sort of, an, you know, to put Ellie on the spot. Um, so we are discussing the Macmillan embargo a few weeks ago and, you know, and she had the, the, you know, the idea that like you could use this to sort of bolster your position where like you could create a solution that sort of works for everybody. And, you know, whereas like this has kind of been framed as like an us versus them, you know, rather than like a, you know, I guess in publishing, that's all, or in the in America, that's it's everything is kind of framed as oppositional rather than like a cooperational system. And you know, without like getting too far into that, because you know, I feel like it's not so much about them as it is about like, you know, often these when there's budget cuts or people see sales receding, they sort of panic and don't really think through the decisions or think through, you know, what the actual impacts or goals are. Is it, are you, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Me or Ellie? Uh, you. Oh, <laughs> you said you were putting Ellie on the spot. Okay. Uh, I don't feel on the spot. <laughs> you could do better than that. I'll try harder. <laughs> Yeah, you want. I mean, you want to frame your idea a little more, Ellie, because I don't actually remember exactly what you were. I don't remember what we were talking about either, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> we might just so need to cut this we, part. We slipped by, but <laughs> so you know, I guess it's like it's more like the cooperative solution is really the win-win rather than this whole like it's gotten so factionalized. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So I, I mean, I, th I think there's the Macmillan example, which was fascinating because in John Sargent's mind he believed he was going about this in a collaborative way and to some you know in his very limited defense he did talk to a handful of librarians um 
<clears throat> the ones he didn't talk to, you know, had very good reasons why they were either not the right ones or not uh, broadly representative enough to make such a big decision. Um, I think it's the catch-22 of he talked to individual librarians rather than the respective organizations. Um, as someone who's dealt with those organizations in different ways, kind of can't fault him for deciding to talk to individual librarians. Um, the I think you look at the AAP suing uh, in Maryland and New York against those uh, bills that it passed. Everything is oppositional, and every step of the way, the you know the request has been: Can we stop fighting about this and come together and figure out? a way to make this work because at the end of the day libraries just want to make your books available like they're not trying they're, they're not pirates and a lot of this feels like publish some publishers think of libraries as just a different kind of pirate to be fought and exterminated as opposed to be partnered with to figure out how can we you know find a mutually beneficial way to make it work i think the interesting thing about mcmillan's approach is if they hadn't gone 100% across their entire line with it, I think there was a version of what they did that might have actually worked because it did speak to a lot of smaller libraries' concerns. It didn't speak to bigger library systems' concerns. And those were the ones most set by uh, the embargo. Most li small libraries like, all right, we were only gonna buy one copy anyway, so this actually isn't too bad for us. I think he got a lot of that feedback and not enough of the NYPL. We've got 8 million people in this city. You can't give us one copy of a book for eight weeks. That's insane. Um, so I, I think you know the, the call I made while I was running Panorama Project, one I continue to kind of put out there just in my own individual ad advocacy is get out of the courts and put you know, BISG, in my mind is the one best situated to kind of drive this forward but for whatever reason they haven't prioritized it because they're the one industry organization that represents each faction <clears throat> aap is all publishers ala is an underfunded mess that's all libraries and doesn't do anything well bisg though you know has a structure in place that a avoids any concerns about collusion so publishers can engage in a bisg framework um so when I was running Panorama Project, you know, one of the things I said is, why does why do we even exist? This should be a BISG initiative. Um, we'll see. Uh, as the most recent thing I heard, it's still not a priority for BISG. Um, AAP is ready to go to court again if another state tries to resurface the law, and there are a couple working on revised versions. So I suspect, and you know, then there's the Internet Archive one and Control Digital Lending. So like a third front in the library battle that one's a little more nuanced i'm not i'm both a fan of internet archive and not a fan of how they do some things so it's complicated um but <clears throat> i think at the end of the day those are three examples of we'd rather fight than figure out how to come together and that bisg in particular still has not stepped up and said hey maybe it's finally time you know not to call bisg out but to call them out again because i've called them out about on the scene times. Um, I think that ultimately is the best potential answer right now. They're the ones that need to pick up this ball and start working on a framework to figure it out because no, nothing else is going to work. I think the thing that I was 
spitballing to Joe a while. This was like a month ago, so I don't fully remember. And now that I think about it, this might be like completely against the law. But like, I did. Yeah, I was like, so like, you know, I want to read the newest Tamsin Mirror book. And so do like 800 other people in Portland when it comes out or in the Multnomah County Library System. What if the library could be like, hey, you can wait and read it for free when it's your turn. Or here's a coupon to get the ebook for like 80% off from the directly from the publisher, you know, like, just it just seems like most libraries can't uh yeah <laughs> so even for a while overdrive was testing a buy button mm -hmm. um and most libraries explicitly can't allow oh, they're, that they're just like not allowed. Of, yeah even at events like most libraries will bring in a bookstore to do the book sales because they can't transact in a financial relationship at all um not not every library system but the vast majority that's an issue um but i will say for independent publishers who are not caught up, you know, in the big five nonsense, it's an opera, you know, libraries are an opportunity for you to undercut the people who are treating libraries poorly. You know, that means, you know, look at the terms that you're offering compared to the, if you're offering big five terms as an independent publisher and wondering why you're not selling as many books to libraries, there's your answer right there. Like, they have to kind of buy big five unless you've got something on the big on the bestseller list that consumers are demanding you're not going to sell books ebooks in particular to libraries at big five terms so look at your business model understand where you are in the market and what libraries potentially could represent there are a variety of other models out there beyond the restrictive ones the big five some are super friendly you know, perpetual and same get why that's not viable for a lot of publishers but there's a lot of middle ground that libraries are perfectly i mean if you remember when harper collins announced their 26 checkout expiration into the world you know satan now ran harper collins libraries now look at the best model like okay it's not ideal but it's not limited to time so when Mac, yeah. Mac, when mcmillan did their thing where they were claiming you know i was surprised overdrive like put data out there 79% of all Macmillan ebooks expired before the 52 checkouts, 11 and a half checkouts on average per book before they expired. And take out the bestsellers, it was 8.3 checkouts over a two year period before that book expired, which completely blew up Sargent's claim of what the equivalent uh, revenue they were getting on 52 checkouts, because very few of their ebooks were actually ever getting checked out 52 times. So there are there are gaps in the market for indie publishers to really kind of step in and fill if a you understand how libraries acquire and why and you know identify terms that work for you that are better than what the big five are offering. I think that's a great note to end on. Yeah. And I do want to throw one detail in there what we've had great success with is just publishing nonfiction books that are midlist books by any definition that serve a need and then libraries can easily recognize that and then realize what of their patrons need that need fulfilled you know whether that's like well the public the namesake publishing book of this podcast that's been a huge book in libraries to, you know, even books like we have a new book about like conflict resolution and, you know, things like that, where it's just like, it serves, it solves a problem. You know, you don't need to have like big name fiction authors or things like that to get placement in libraries. Yeah. 
and a lot of your nonfiction is evergreen. It's not, you know, new shiny uh, du jour. It's this is going to be relevant in five years, and maybe you do another edition to update it, but it's still relevant. And those are the books that do best in library systems because those continue to circulate versus you know the big boom for two months of that bestseller that then fades away, and then they expire. <clears throat> You're, you know, if you're in nonfiction, libraries can be your best friend if you get the marketing and positioning right. Mm -hmm. Thank you for recognizing and pointing that out. That is, you know, librarians, I, friends forever. Ideally, <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not on opposing teams. Thanks for joining us once again. Please send your questions to podcast at microcosmpublishing.com so we can answer them on future episodes. And please give us five stars on iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are reviewed. You can find us on the internet at microcosm.pub. On Twitter at microcosm. On Facebook at microcosm publishing. On Instagram at microcosm underscore pub. And here in Portland, Oregon on North Williams Avenue. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week.